So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. And Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him into Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas. He was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Let's pray. Lord, this evening as we behold you in your greatness, we arrive at the garden. We arrive at a scene where you're abound. We arrive at a scene that is filled with greatness. Not only in majesty, but in purity. Lord, would you open our eyes this evening afresh to walk with you, to stop and stare, to stop and stare in amazement. Would we stop and stare with disbelief that you would do this for us? And would we see our faces in the crowd? And would it cause us to delight in you all the more? In Jesus' name. Amen. You know, one of the things we often do on family night, as you know, is watch movies. We love movies. So tonight I did consider playing a part of a movie for you. But here's what happens whenever you play a movie. Wherever you stop it, people are like, oh, what happens next? But books don't quite seem to have that same effect. And so I wanted to give you the real thing. And I want to begin this evening with reading you a part of C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's the part in chapter 14 that is called The Triumph of the Witch. Susan and Lucy are aware that it appears they're not going to see Aslan anymore. And this is what happens. Aslan speaks. Oh, children, children, here you must stop. And whatever happens, do not let yourselves be seen. Farewell. And both the girls cried bitterly, though they hardly knew why, and clung to the lion and kissed his mane and his nose and his paws and his great sad eyes. Then he turned from them and walked out onto the top of the hill. And Lucy and Susan, crouching in the bushes, looked after him. And this is what they saw. A great crowd of people were standing all round the stone table, and though the moon was shining, many of them carried torches 
which burned with evil-looking red flames and black smoke. But such people, ogres with monstrous teeth and wolves and bull-headed men, spirits of evil trees and poisonous plants, and other creatures whom I won't describe, because if I did, the grown-ups would probably not let you read this book. Cruels and hags and incubuses, wraiths, horrors, freaks, sprites, orkneys, Uzzes and Etins. In fact, here were all of those who were at the witch's side and whom the wolf had summoned at her command. Right in the middle, standing by the table, was the witch herself. A howl and a gibber of dismay went up from the creatures when they first saw the great lion pacing towards them. And for a moment, even the witch seemed to be struck with fear. Then she recovered herself and gave a wild, fierce laugh. The fool, she cried, the fool has come. Bind him fast. Lucy and Susan held their breaths, waiting for Aslan's roar and his spring upon his enemies. But it never came. Four hags grinning and leering, yet also at first hanging back and half afraid of what they had to do, had approached him. Bind him, I say, repeated the white witch. The hags made a doubt at him and shrieked with triumph when they found that he made no resistance at all. Then others, evil dwarfs and apes, rushed in to help them. And between them, they rolled the huge lion over on his back and tied all his four paws together, shouting and cheering as if they had done something brave. Though had the lion chosen, one of those paws could have been the death of them all. But he made no noise. Even when the enemies, straining and tugging, pulled the cord so tight that they did cut into his flesh, and they began to drag him towards the stone table. Stop, said the witch. Let him first be shaved. Another roar of mean laughter went up from her followers as an ogre with a pair of shears came forward and squatted down by Aslan's head. Snip, snip, snip went the shears, and masses of curling gold began to fall to the ground. Then the ogre stood back and the children, watching from their hiding place, could see the face of Aslan looking small and different without its mane. The enemies also saw the difference. Why, he's only a great cat after all, cried one. Is that what we were afraid of, said another. Oh, how can they, said Lucy, tears streaming down her cheeks. The brutes, the brutes. But now that the first shock was over, the shorn face of Aslan looked to her braver and more beautiful and more patient than ever before. Muzzle him, said the witch. And even now, as they worked about his face, putting on the muzzle, one bite from his jaws would have cost two or three of them their hands. But he never moved. And this seemed to enrage all that rabble. Everyone was at him now. Those who had been afraid to come near him after, after he was bound began to find their courage. And for a few minutes, the two girls could not even see him. So thickly was he surrounded by the whole crowd of creatures kicking him, hitting him, spitting on him, and jeering at him. At last, the rabble had had enough of this. They began to drag the bound and muzzled lion to the stone table, some pulling and some pushing. He was so huge that even when they got him there, it took all their efforts to hoist him on the surface of it. Then there was more tying and tightening of cords. 
The cowards. The cowards, sobbed Susan. Are they still afraid of him, even now? When once Aslan had been tied, and tied so that he really was a mass of cords on that flat stone, a hush fell on the crowd. Four hags, holding four torches, stood at the corners of the table. The witch bared her arms as she had bared them the previous night when it had been Edmund instead of Aslan. Then she began to wet her knife. It looked to the children when the gleam of the torchlight fell on it as if the knife were made of stone, not of steel. And it was a strange and evil shape. At last she drew near. She stood by Aslan's head. Her face was working and twitching with passion. But he looked up at the sky, still quiet, neither angry nor afraid, but a little sad. That just before she gave the blow, she stooped down and said in a quivering voice, And now, who has won, fool? Did you think that by all this you would save the human traitor? Now I will kill you instead of him, as our pact was, and so the deep magic will be appeased. But when you are dead, what will prevent me from killing him as well? And who will take him out of my hand then? Understand that you have given me Narnia forever. You have lost your own life, and you have not saved his. In that knowledge, despair and die. You know, I love this book. Because outside the Bible, it's just one of those wonderful books that takes us into the Bible. Because C.S. Lewis wrote it to share the gospel. He wrote it to show us a picture of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Aslan, in the story, is Jesus. The great King of kings and Lord of lords. The white witch is Satan, the father of all lies, the one who is opposed to Jesus in all things. Edmund, the guy who sells everything for some Turkish delight, this foolish, impulsive, selfish, unfaithful young man is all of us. And the stone table is Calvary. And what I want you to realize this evening is this great part in C.S. Lewis's book is a direct analogy of what is taking place here in John chapter 18. That's where it's up to. That's what's taking place. And the hour has come for Jesus. The hour from which he was sent by God the Father has arrived for him. He then is arrested and bound and led away. Many commentators believe that when those soldiers turned up, that wasn't just one or ten or even a hundred. That would have most likely been over a thousand soldiers coming down to arrest him. Because he was the one they'd been waiting for. He was the one they wanted to see dead. And throughout then this whole time, through the writings of John and in so many ways through the eyes of Lucy and Susan, we get to look on and stare, don't we? We get to look on through this story and see what the Lord is really doing. And it is dazzling. Because we get to look on at the roar that never came. All throughout this whole scene, Jesus could have in a moment issued a roar or a swipe of his paw or a bite that would have stopped everything. Because he's the king. But that roar never came. He allowed himself to be bound. He allowed all these things to happen to him. 
And as we examine this part in the gospel and beyond, we get to see why the roar never came. And it's staggering as we look on to see why the roar never came. You know, when we gather around John 18, we really are on holy ground. Because we're around Jesus in his death. And we see the roar that never came. This message then is not going to be all about application. I see you're welcome to make notes. This message is all about stopping and staring. That's why John has written it. He's not written it to give us 10 things to go home and change our life in light of it. He's written it to say, look and see him. This is what he's done for you. And this is who he is. This message is not going to be heavy on application. No, this message is all going to be about looking. And there's three things that I want us to see then this evening. And here's the first. Number one. Stop and stare at the Savior's power. Look at it. Look and see it. Look with me at verse 3. It says, So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus has just been in the upper room and he tells Judas, Listen, the time has come. The one who's going to betray me. Now's your time. And Judas runs out of that room, in part terrified, but aware this is his moment. This is the moment he's going to betray Jesus for money. Because money ultimately was more important to him than Jesus. And so having been told that by Jesus to remove himself and go and do what he's come to do, Judas does. He gets all this army together. He gets the chief priests together. He gets the soldiers together. They arrive in the garden of Gethsemane. Then we read in verse 4, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Literally, those words are ego and me. I am. doesn't quite make sense when, it, when it's just written like that. So we hear it phrased, I am he. But he actually says, I am. And that is filled with massive theological importance. Because in Exodus chapter 3, God says to Moses, go and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And Moses is nervous about the whole thing. He argues and comes and goes with God, but he demands him, you must go and tell my people, go and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And so Moses finally agrees and he says, well, who, who shall I say has sent me? He said, well, tell him, ego or me has sent you. Tell him I am has sent you. So off Moses goes, and he tells him that I am has sent him. In John chapter 8, the Jews are questioning Jesus and asking him, Who on earth do you think you are? You're doing all these miracles. You're casting out demons. It would appear that you're claiming to be God. Who are you? What are you about? And they throw everything at Jesus, the pinnacle of it being that, Listen, do you think that you are better than Abraham? Do you believe that you are better than our forefather, the wonderful father Abraham? Do you believe that you are better than our patriarch? So Jesus tells them, before Abraham was, Igor me, I am. 
And at that point, the crowd totally hit on Jesus. They start to pick up stones and they want to throw them at him. But because he is ego on me, he blinds them in that moment and removes himself from his presence to save his own life. Because at that point, his hour hadn't come. And then we see it here again in John 18. They ask him the same question. We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. So Jesus said to them, ego on me. I am. And astonishingly, we see the effect of those words. Don't miss it. Look at verse 6. This is the effect of these words. When Jesus said to them, Ego o me, they drew back and fell to the ground. Is that not incredible to you? A thousand soldiers, they're all coming to arrest him. They don't know Jesus. They don't want Jesus. They don't like Jesus. They ask him, saying, hey, listen, we're looking for one Jesus in Nazareth. And he says to them, ego o me. And in that moment, it is like another sonic boom going off because each and every soldier hits the floor. They don't even know why they're hitting the floor. But they recognize, you're the king. It's one of these crazy scenes where no one seems to know what's going on, but they recognize Igor and me. This appears to be him. They don't love him. They don't want to follow him. Even from this moment, they proceed to arrest him and ultimately crucify him. But when he says Igor and me, everybody bows before him. What a powerful Savior. And this isn't unusual. We see Jesus and the Lord having this effect on people, this encountering of divine power. We see it all the way through God's word. In Ezekiel chapter 1, when Ezekiel catches a glimpse of the Lord, he falls on his face before the Lord. In Luke chapter 5, when Peter first encounters Jesus, Jesus is sitting on the side saying, Hey, listen, you know, don't keep putting out your nets that side. Put your nets out this side. And so he does it. He starts to catch thousands and thousands of fish that he can't even get in the boat. He brings his boat in and he falls on his face before the Lord. Why? Because he says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. He's aware you're not just a man. There's something incredible about you. So he falls on his face before him, recognizing this divine power. And in the book of Revelation, in Revelation 1, as John receives the great vision from the Lord, Great vision of those last days, he encounters the Lord and he falls to the floor as though dead. When people encounter the king, they fall to the floor. And in this moment, even when Jesus' hour has come, over a thousand soldiers that don't even know his name fall to the floor in homage to him because he's the king. He is ego and me. My friends, behold the power of your God. Don't miss this. This is our king. You see, sometimes we encounter unbelievers and you chat to them about Jesus and about the Lord. And they say, oh yeah, Jesus. You know, when I meet Jesus, if that's what's going to happen, I'm going to give him a piece of my mind. Because I don't think he did a very good job here on earth. And you just think, oh boy you're not going to give him a piece of anything. You're going to hit your knees and bow before him because that's what everybody does. And he says his name. You will involuntarily bow before him, recognizing, 
are the king. You are the one. For many people in this moment, particularly the Muslims, they believe that this is the moment where Jesus lost it. His life was going all right prior to this point. This would have been a point where he could have escaped from all things and lived a happy life. But instead, this is the moment where he gave his life away. What was he doing? They believe this is the moment he completely lost it. That it was basically just a tragedy. No, it was a triumph. In John chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus says, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. And this charge I have received from my Father. Jesus walked into this all along, knowing what was going to take place. Such was his majesty. I'm giving my life away. You're not taking it from me. I'm giving it up. Look and see the Savior's resolve. Because this is the God we worship. This is the one we sing to. This is the one we live for. This is the one to whom we're running that race for, knowing that one day we will get to bow before him and he will put a wreath on our heads. This is him. Stop and stare at him. Stop and stare at his great power. That's not all. Number two. Stop and stare at the Savior's resolve. See, on display here in these verses is not only the Savior's power. What is also on clear display is the Savior's resolve. And what incredible resolve it is. Because between verses 1 and 2, so much takes place. Because between verses 1 and 2, the Garden of Gethsemane takes place. And if we are truly going to understand and marvel at the incredible resolve of the Savior, if we are going to understand verse 4 that says, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward. If we're going to feel the full effect of that verse, then we have to first attend the Garden. John is presuming we understand all of that. He's not seeking to reach that crowd in particular. But when you go to the Gospel of Mark, he's not presuming that. And he tells us all that happens between verses 1 and 2 of John chapter 18. And what you see in the Gospel of Mark chapter 14 is incredible. And I also now want to go there momentarily. You don't have to turn there. But I want to go there to explain to you what was happening between verses 1 and 2. You know, there is a small verse in a very well-known hymn that I think is so relevant and helpful to what we're looking at tonight. This is the verse. Oh, help me understand it. Help me to take it in. What it meant to thee, the Holy One, to bear away my sin. Oh, help me to understand it. Help me to take it in. What it meant to thee, the Holy One. The one that we see in Isaiah chapter 6. To bear away my sin. What, it, what did it mean to thee? To bear away our sin? Oh, well, listen. Listen. 
uh, chapter 14, verses 26 to 42, explains what it meant to thee. Listen. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping. But their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Oh, help me understand it. Help me to take it in. What it meant to thee, the Holy One, to bear away my sin. What did it mean to thee? What did it mean for the Holy One to bear away my sin? This is what it meant. It meant resolving to endure the wrath of God for our sin through the crucible of human weakness. That's what it meant for thee, to bear away our sin. That's what it meant to him. It meant resolving to endure God's righteous and full and furious wrath for our sin through the crucible of human weakness. You see, make no mistake, Jesus is fully God. That's why in that moment he can say, ego me," and everybody bows before him. But also make no mistake, Jesus is fully man. That's why he can be our sin bearer. He can't be our sin bearer if he's not like us. He had to be made just like us. He had to become just like us 
That's why in Hebrews 4, he can tell us, hey, listen, I've been tempted just as you are. I get it because I'm like you. I have flesh just like you. I have feelings just like you. So come to me. I will help you. He was fully God, but he was fully man. So what did it mean to thee? It meant resolving to endure the wrath of God, the full and furious wrath of God for our sins through the crucible of human weakness. Well, what did that look like? It looked like that scene right there. It looked first and foremost like relational abandonment. I mean, Mark is very specific in his timing of the different issues. And he goes on to tell us time and time again of the relational abandonment that Jesus starts to incur. Sure, when Jesus comes into ministry, everybody's excited because he's healing everybody. This is awesome. But the alleged triumphal entry into Jerusalem, you know the one? Where everybody's like, oh, they all understood who he was. No, they didn't. They were doing this to every rabbi that came past. This was nationalism going on in this moment. And we know it because as soon as Jesus gets to the temple, when you would assume Jesus Christ as the King of kings and Lord of lords going to his home, everybody would be gathering and going, Hail the King! Hail the King! But Mark deliberately tells us that when he arrives, no one's there. Because no one cares. And no one has a clue who he is. Already the crowds are deserting him. Already they're starting to abandon him. And that then continues into Gethsemane and then throughout his arrest and trial and crucifixion. The Savior is abandoned again and again and again. Relationally, he is utterly, utterly alone. Jesus prophesies it. He tells them what's going to happen. In verses 27 through 31, he tells them. The shepherd's going to get struck. And the sheep will scatter. And Peter's like, whoa, we won't. How you will. And then in verses 32 to 42, the hour of abandonment has finally arrived. Jesus takes them into the garden of Gethsemane and he picks his three best, Peter, James, and John, his closest friends. He says, listen, this is hard for me. I want you to sit here. Please pray. And they don't. They fall asleep. They can't even stay up to help him in that moment. They can't even stay awake to watch and pray. And Mark wants to help us see, even now, he's being abandoned by his friends. Each and every one is going. Just a day later when he's hanging on a cross, no one's there particularly. They've abandoned him in heart. All that he's going through, he's going through alone. What did it mean for thee? Well, it meant relational abandonment, but more even than that, it meant in aloneness suffering great distress of soul. My friends, as Christians, we must never lose sight of this distress of soul. We must never do. Sinclair Ferguson says it this way. He said, The Garden of Gethsemane is one of the most sacred and solemn scenes in the entire Bible. I believe it is. It's one of the most sacred and solemn scenes in the entire Bible. 
Look again at verse 33 and 34. It says, And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Luke tells us that in this moment, his sweat was like drops of blood. Because he was undergoing distress of soul. He started to become so fearful of what was about to happen to him. He is sweating drops of blood. Such was his distress of soul. And the reason for that, as we read in verse 36, is without doubt because of the cup. An inarguable reference to the wrath of God for our sins. That's why there was such distress. That's why there was such sorrow, because he's aware, I am going to have to undergo the wrath of God. C.J. Mahaney says this. He says, Isaiah 51 verse 17 describes the cup of wrath, the cup of righteous, furious wrath. This is the cup that the Savior is now contemplating, the cup that contains within it the full fury and fiercenessness of God's holy wrath against our sin. As the Savior gazes into this cup, he is brought face to face with this specific reality, the reality of bearing our sins and the reality of becoming the object of the Father's righteous and furious wrath. And that prospect is so horrific for the Savior at this moment that he couldn't even remain standing. See, verse 35, we read, And going a little farther, he fell to the ground. Not only was he sweating drops of blood, he staggered. As he starts to see the cup, as he starts to see what enduring and bearing away our sins is really going to cost him. Which is why he cries out in verse 36, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Father, please remove this cup from me. But ultimately, Father, not my will, but what you will be done. William Lane very insightfully writes in his commentary on Mark the following words. He says, The dreadful sorrow and anxiety out of which the prayer for the passing of the cup springs is not an expression of fear before a dark destiny, nor a shrinking from the prospect of physical suffering and death. It is rather the horror of the one who lives wholly for the Father the prospect of the alienation from God, which is entailed in the judgment upon sin, which Jesus assumes. This horror thus anticipates the cry of dereliction in chapter 15, verse 44. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Listen. Jesus came to be with the Father for an interlude before his betrayal found hell rather than heaven open before him. And he staggered. Jesus entered into the garden knowing, I, I need your help. 
And yet as he fell to the ground, he realized it isn't heaven that's opening up before me. It's hell. It's the cup. It's the hour for which I've come. But this is overwhelming for my soul. I'm in great distress. He is sweating drops of blood and staggers to the ground. What did it mean to thee, the Holy One, to bear away my sin? It meant resolving to endure the wrath of God, our sin, through the crucible of human weakness. It meant relational abandonment, being completely alone, and it meant distress of soul as the Father poured his wrath out on his son. It wasn't heaven that opened up before him in the garden. It was hell. It was the horror of which he has come for. All that takes place between verses 1 and 2 of chapter 18 in the Gospel of John. Now read it again. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas had betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Listen. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward. He's just been in the garden and staggered. He's just cried out to his father, is there any other way? Because hell opened up before him. And he wasn't met with praise in that moment. He was met with unusual silence. And so he comes out the garden. Behold, his betrayer is at hand with some thousand soldiers becoming behind him. And they ask, we're looking for Jesus in Nazareth. And so Jesus steps forward. Come for me. My friends, behold the resolve of your king. Knowing all that was going to happen to him, then Jesus came forward. Behold the resolve of your Lord. What did it mean to thee? It meant relational abandonment. It meant distress of soul. But Jesus then, knowing who they were coming for, came forward. You're looking for me. Because my time has come. This is my hell. So you're looking for me. Ego on me. Behold the resolve of your Lord. He doesn't give in. He never gives in. He is resolved to do that which he was sent for. Stop and stare at that resolve. Stop and stare at his power. Stop and stare at his resolve. And then finally, number three, stop and stare at the Savior's love. At his profound and overwhelming love for thee. 
If we have been observant, then we will have already seen the Savior's love for us. If we've been paying attention, we will have seen it throughout, I believe, this text. His power at the start is being withstrained. He could have, in a moment, through the mighty roar of who he is, through the bite of his teeth, or through a swipe of his paw, wiped all of that army out, and the Lord would have sent angels from heaven, and he's gone. He withstrains all that. And he lets them do everything that they're going to do to him. Imagine how difficult the mocking then would be in the verses to follow. Knowing I could wipe you in a moment. And his power would allow it. But behold the resolve of the Lord. Not only do we see his love and his power being withstrained, but we also see it in his resolve. A resolve that was no doubt being tested to the absolute max. How tempting, overwhelmingly tempting it must have been in the garden just to go, I'm done. I just can't do it. Yet he doesn't. He comes out, comes forward, you're looking for me. And yet I think it is in verse 8 that I believe we see the Savior's love most Clearly. This is what we read in verse 8. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. Here's why we see the Savior's love in that moment. We see the Savior's love most clearly in that moment because we see the love of God in substitution. See, Isaiah was ultimately in a place he shouldn't have been. He's in the temple of the Lord. He shouldn't have been there. He's not a priest. He's not a high priest. He shouldn't be there at all. Jesus, in this moment, is in a place he shouldn't be. We should be there. You and I should be there. You and I should be going through all that he is going through in this moment. All that the Lord has glanced at in the cup, the hell that was unfolding before him that caused him to stagger and fall. All that he starts to realize that is going to take place that is causing him to sweat drops of blood. He starts to see what we should be receiving. We should be there. We shouldn't be where Isaiah is. We should be where Jesus is in this moment. That should be us. But Jesus steps forward and says, Hey, you're looking for me. And now you've got me? Let these men go. That's substitution. He's giving his life away as a ransom for many. My friends, if you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, this is him in all his glory. This is him in his power. This is him in his resolve. This is him in his love for you. The Bible's clear that God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. 
This is what he's done for you. So I beg you, I urge you, choose life. Put your faith in him as your Lord and Savior and know him as your friend and your redeemer and your Lord and you will not regret it. He came looking for you. So put your faith in him and know the life that he's bringing. Because that's why he came. My friends, if you're here tonight and you're already a believer, which would be the most of you. When you read verse 8, Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. Insert your name where it says men. Because that's what he's done for you. It's like in this moment, he's saying, if you seek me, then let Mel go. If you seek me, you can have me. So let Emma go. If you seek me, I'm coming forward. I'm coming forward for you. So let Lynn go. Because I'm taking his place. My friends, insert your name. And then never doubt for another moment in your life whether he loves you or not. Because he clearly does. More than you could have ever asked or imagined. My friends, behold your God. This is him. This is him and his power. He could have in a moment wiped them out. He could have in a moment stopped everything that was taking place. But he doesn't. It was the roar that never came. He could have lacked resolve. He could have given up, but he doesn't. He keeps going and going and going. And the reason why the roar never came was because of love for you. He wanted to bring glory to the Father. And he wanted to save the people he had been sent for. So he was in the garden. And he staggered. And then he came out. And he stepped forward with all the anguish that was contained within that so that you could be saved. Behold your God. Behold him in his power. Behold him in his resolve. Behold him in his love. Don't look away and marvel and delight in everything you see because this is your king. Let's pray. Well, Lord, this morning we got to marvel at you and your holiness and supremacy. This morning we saw you with a robe that filled the temple. We saw you with seraphim around you covering their eyes because of your holiness and supremacy. And this evening we see you staggering in the garden. Oh, Lord, would our minds be blown by that reality? In that reality, would we taste and see of your profound love for us? Lord, as we stop and stare, would we continue to be amazed with you? And Lord, in everything that we see, 
what you ever increasingly become our delight and reward because you're worthy of it all. In Jesus' name.